I really wrestled with what does it look like to, for me to, to passionately and persuasively uh, state what my one thing is without uh, contradicting everybody else that's spoken earlier this summer and the people that are going to speak later this summer. Because if there's only one thing and I'm right, doesn't that make everybody else wrong if there's only one thing? Uh, so a little existential angst there uh, until I remembered a story from my first job out of college. After I graduated, I worked for John Maxwell, who's a leadership author and speaker, and he speaks all over. And uh, if you work for him for any period of time, there's a few stories that you become familiar enough with that you can tell them. And so uh, there was one story, anytime he spoke, he'd have really eager young leaders come up to him and ask for, like, secret insider advice. And so he frequently told the story of this Young guy, after he spoke, came rushing up to him, and he's like, hey, I'm in a big hurry. I don't have a lot of margin. I'm getting things done. I need to know the one thing I need to know about leadership. What's the one thing? And so John looked at him for a minute, and then he, he just went with it. And he leaned in, and he's like, come here. Come real close. The guy's, guy's intense. He comes in, he's like, the one thing that you need to know about leadership is that there is more than one thing you need to know about leadership. And the guy walked away very frustrated. Um, But John knew that leadership is a very complex and nuanced thing, and anybody that's going to say there's only one thing you need to know is not to be trusted. And so if that's true of leadership, then if we're talking about what, what does it look like to thrive and flourish in life in a broken world... The idea that there would be just one thing is, is also dubious. And so in the context of, of my time this morning and all the other times this summer, know that we're talking about the one thing that has most revolutionized our life, and we believe deeply that that truth in your life would revolutionize your life also. But unfortunately, there's more than one thing. Let me pray and we'll get started. Father, I I thank you that while there's a a lifelong of learning for us and discovery and growth that your son really is the one thing, and if we could become students of your son, then then that would be sufficient. As you would teach him, uh, teach us about him and be present with us this morning. Amen. So if you had the opportunity to know that you were about to leave this earth, you had a little bit of time, it's not like five seconds, you got it, go. Um, You have a little time, and you have the opportunity to gather around you the people in your life that are most important to you, that mean the most to you, You can share with them one last time. What would your message be? What would be the one thing that you would share if you knew it was the last chance you had to share with those people? Would it be, I I love you. I'm sorry. I forgive you. There's always money in the banana stand some kind of word of wisdom, 
if we polled everybody in this room right now, we'd probably see some very common themes of love and forgiveness and reconciliation. We would see probably some outliers, some really unique messages. But the thing that would underlie everyone's last message to the people that are important, most important to them is, what do they most need to hear? What do I feel like these people most need to hear for after I'm gone? And that is the message we're going to look at today is that message that Jesus chose. Because he knew that he was, when he was on earth, that his time was short. He alluded to his coming death several times with the disciples. They never really got it, but he told them. And so he knew his last time was coming, and he knew his last message was going to be important. So what was it? What was it that he wanted to tell them to be his last words to them? Before we look at those words that we've already alluded to, I think it's important to see the full context of what he shared with them. Because Jesus was constantly giving analogies and illustrations and parables, and some of them were very uh, simple, and some of them were really weird, and he talked about seeds and trees and dogs and lepers and Samaritans, and he was constantly using illustrations. And so it'd be easy to assume that this message that was housed in an illustration was a one-off thing. It's like, oh, this would be a good analogy. But what's true is this, this image is woven through all of Scripture, all of the story of humanity going back to creation. And the weight of his words to his disciples before he was crucified take on the weight of all of human history. So we're going to do a very brief, do not worry, a very brief story in the context of this illustration and see how God painted this picture of this image from the foundation of the world for us. I'm not going to put up a bunch of scriptures on the screen. I'll allude to them. So if you want to go back and make sure I wasn't just making up references and telling my own story, write down these references and you can look them up later. We're just going to walk through the story from the beginning. So in Genesis, the first book in scripture, Genesis is the book of creation. And God created everything and he created humanity, he created man in his own image Male and female, he created them, both man and woman, in God's image. And he placed them in a garden. And that's the first important thing. See, a a forest, a field, a jungle, all these settings are places where you have a bunch of wild stuff growing in whatever way it just happens to grow. But a garden is unique. Because a garden is cultivated. A garden is a place where there's intentional plants in intentional places, grown for intentional purposes. And so when God created man in his own image, created Adam and Eve, he didn't place them in a forest, didn't place them in a field, didn't place them in a jungle, didn't place them in a desert, he placed them in a garden. A place of intentionally cultivated plants. And his charge to them was to multiply and to be fruitful. To be fruitful. They're in a cultivated garden and God tells them to be fruitful. And what that meant was 
to live with their creator God and to receive life and love from him and, and share it with each other. To be fruitful. To receive and to give. But if you're familiar with the story, the fall of man, the beginning of sin, the brokenness of the world entering comes when the enemy, Satan, comes and deceives Adam and Eve. And the subtle message was that God is holding out. There's goodness and there's life to be had apart from God's provision. It's not just about receiving and giving. You've got to take. It was one particular fruit from one particular tree that God said, don't take from that. There's not goodness here. There's not goodness from, for you here. Do not take from this tree. But that message from the enemy was, you're, you, if you just receive and just give, you're going to miss out on something. You need to take this. So they took it. They were aware of their own nakedness. They were ashamed. They hid themselves. And God came to them and said, I, I called you to multiply and to be fruitful, to receive from me and to give. You took. You're going to have to leave. You're going to have to leave the cultivated garden because you have stopped bearing my fruit. You stopped being fruitful. Cast out. And what we see if you continue to read through the book of Genesis is this cast outedness, this failure to bear fruit, amplifies and multiplies. And one act of disobedience becomes murder and rape and strife and war and deceit and envy. And keeping this plant imagery these plants that were taken out of the garden because they weren't bearing fruit, they, they multiplied. And they multiplied weeds. They multiplied plants that, that bore wild and bitter fruit. Fruit of death and destruction and conflict. And as you read, you see this and you can feel it. Communities and growing nations just at strife. Until God comes across one man, Abraham, who is seeking after the Creator God, and he says, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to create a nation, a people, and they're going to be my people. And I'm going to bless them, and they're going to bless the nations. The nation is going to be called Israel. And in Psalm chapter 80, the, the Psalms are a collection of songs and poems written by David and others. So Psalm 80 and Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah is a book of prophecy. These two things were written hundreds of years apart. But in Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5, this is how the creation of Israel was described. It said, God cleared out. A place of good soil. He took out all these weeds and rocks and, and bad things and cleared out an area of good soil. And he planted a new vine. He planted a new vine that would be called Israel. He said, I'm going to give this vine extra water. I'm going to give this vine extra fertilizer. And this vine is going to grow up strong. 
not because I love this vine and I don't love any other vines, but if I can have one big, strong, flourishing vine that bears great fruit for the nations, then all the nations will be blessed. So I'm going to pour into this vine, and this vine's going to grow up, and it's going to bear fruit, and it's going to bear fruit for the nations. It's this great plan. I'm going to be your people. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless the nations. And if you read in Scripture, man, Israel grows up, it grows up big, and it grows up strong. It grows up proud of itself. We're the vine. We've got some fruit, and you know what it's for? It's for us. Because you don't deserve it. You're not the vine, we're the vine. And in Isaiah 5, that has that imagery of God carefully creating this area and pouring and pouring into this vine. He says, I looked for the fruit of justice and the fruit of righteousness. And the Hebrew words there are mishpat and tzedakah. I looked for mishpat, I looked for tzedakah. But what I got was a cry of pain and bloodshed. Mishpach tzedakah. Two words that sound really, really similar, but the fruit is so different. And so in Psalm 80, in Isaiah 5, in Ezekiel chapter 15, Ezekiel chapter 19, Jeremiah chapter 12, all over the Old Testament, this is what is declared. I planted you, I fed you, I watered you, I made a fence around you, I did everything for you. But you didn't bear my fruit, and so I'm cutting you off. The vine that was my beloved, I'm cutting off. And all that's going to be left is a stump. Because you didn't bear my fruit. So if you read the end of the Old Testament, the story of Israel's life, it's bleak, and it's dark, and it's barren. 400 years of silence described in the word Ichabod, the glory of God has departed because fruit is not being bared. Weeds, brambles, desolation. No hope, right? Well, just a few chapters after Isaiah 5, in Isaiah chapter 11, there's a word of hope. The word of hope is this. From the stump of Jesse, there'll grow a shoot. And that shoot will bear fruit again. It was a prediction hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. That though God had cut off the vine of Israel because it didn't bear fruit, there would be a shoot that grew to bear fruit. It was Christ coming to make a way for us to be fruitful once again. His life on earth of 32 years was about exemplifying and being the way to life, abundant life of fruit bearing. And the people that he 
really confronted were the remnants of Israel that still felt like they were a really special vine. There's a moment in Matthew chapter 21, if you want to read it later, in Matthew 21, Jesus is speaking to some of these leaders of Israel, and he tells them a parable of a vineyard. And for us in the 21st century, when we, we read a parable of a vineyard, we just think, oh, Jesus is making another parable. He does this. This is something he does. But for the religious leaders of Israel, when they, when they heard him talking about a vineyard, and they had the prophets memorized, they had the histories memorized, they knew them in and out. The image of a vineyard for these leaders is going to bring to mind Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Ooh, he's talking about the vineyard. What's he going to say? He tells the parable, and then after the parable, he looks at these religious leaders and says this. The kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to those that will bear its fruit. Israel, you're being, it's being taken away from you. It's going to be given to someone else. And in that moment, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, I hope he's not talking about me because... I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I want that responsibility. It can be taken away from Israel, given to those that will bear its fruit. So that imagery from Genesis through the Psalms, through Isaiah, through Ezekiel, through Jeremiah, into Jesus' life on earth, this is the context we have when we come to the evening that Jesus is going to be arrested. He has dinner with his disciples, and then he wants them to go pray with him. And so they go for a walk. And if you look at a map, what you'll see from the place that they had dinner to the garden where they're going, what are they going to be passing through? Vineyards. They're literally walking among vineyards. And this is what Jesus tells to them as his last message before he is arrested. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, neither you can unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. You can do nothing. So Jesus' last message to his followers was, abide in me. And as Brad referenced, abide is not a super common word in the English language. So what does he mean by abide? I think the best way to describe it is by using actually a comparison to another word that a lot of biblical translations use. The other really common word is remain. And I am not a biblical scholar, but I think remain is a really, really bad translation. The reason is that remain is a really, really passive word. 
Abide is a very, very active word. And thankfully, we were given an analogy, a living analogy that we are, some of us are participating in, all of us are surrounded by, that's supposed to mimic and vaguely point to this abiding relationship, and it's called marriage. And I went to a wedding last night in Frost Chapel. It was 826 degrees. But it was a beautiful, beautiful wedding ceremony. And the bride and the groom exchanged vows that they had written. And as they come away from that wedding ceremony to live the rest of their lives together, there are two very distinct ways that they can fulfill those vows. There's an abiding way, and there's a remaining way. Here's what the remaining way looks like. As a husband, I don't leave. I do a job. I come home. I'm not abusive. I may get every few birthdays and or anniversaries right. I don't cheat. I remain. And we have a 50th anniversary And we don't really talk to each other. We don't really have a relationship. But we have remained. Vows fulfilled. The other way is abide. Unlike remain, the passive word abide is this active, ongoing, constant word. And if that bride and groom last night that weathered the heat commit to one another, are going to abide, what that's going to look like is that this morning and tomorrow morning and a week from now and a month from now and a year from now and when they're faced with tragedy and when they're faced with disappointment, every morning they're turning towards each other. They're getting to know each other more deeply. They're getting to trust each other more. They're getting to know what each other desires and likes and trying to provide those things. Getting to know what they despise and what they hate and trying to avoid those things. Trying to serve and serve and serve. And as that intimacy grows, the service becomes less and less cumbersome and more and more natural outflow of love. They become more and more and more and more intimate. And on their 50th anniversary, instead of looking wistfully back at those kids that were so in love, they look back and think, man, they didn't, those kids didn't even know each other. They didn't know the love they were committing to. What a contrast. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. So all of us are branches. Some of us are branches that have, that have rooted into a, the vine of self-sufficiency or the vine of success or the vine of approval or the vine of pleasure or the vine of comfort. And we're cranking out fruit that is bitter and unfulfilling. And some of us are branches, and man, we are scrambling around desperate to bear some really good fruit. We're desperate to bear good fruit, and we're so confused about why, where, why am I angry, and why am I tired, and why am I full of lust, and why am I dissatisfied, and why am I not bearing fruit? 
And it's because we're like an apple tree that somehow has uprooted itself and has found itself on a parking lot, and it's just straining to pop out an apple. Just one apple. I'm going to work really hard and pop out one apple. And it can't pop out one apple. Because trees, like vines, do not produce fruit. They bear fruit. You do not have the ability, no matter how hard you work, if you give every moment of every day and every molecule of energy, you will never produce a single fruit. Because you're a branch. You can only bear fruit. So for those of us that are tasting the bitter fruit of our own lives, for those of us that are desperately straining to just produce one fruit, for us there is only one thing. Abide. Abide. Father, I confess that we are a community of branches that, for a lot of reasons, don't look much different from that vine that you cut off and replaced with us. I ask you to forgive us we're following in the footsteps of our forebears. I ask that for each of us, you would help us confront our own inability to bear good fruit. And that that confrontation would lead us to desperately cling to your vine. Help us as we stumble in that direction to be gracious to ourselves and gracious to each other. Please abide in us. Amen.